The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show is a little bit strange. It's about codependence and cold-blooded kindness. And you might say, well, gee, how does that relate to conflict resolution and conflict healing? And we're going to talk about that with our wonderful guests. First, let me tell you who we are speaking with today. We are speaking with Barbara Oakley, who is the author of this new book, Cold-Blooded Kindness, Neuroquirks of a Codependent Killer, or Just Give Me a Shot at Loving You, Dear, and Other Reflections on Helping That Hurts. That's the subtitle. And um, let me tell you about this exciting woman. She is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. And she is the editor of the forthcoming Pathological Altruism by Oxford University Press. And she is one of the few women to hold a doctorate in systems engineering. And she is a fellow of the American Institute of Medical and Biological Engineers and so much more. And she has an interesting academic career. You know, she apparently was a globetrotter uh, that dubbed her the female Indiana Jones. And while she was knocking back tumblers of vodka with a captain of a Soviet fishing boat during the height of the Cold War, she was told she knew too much and it was time to kill her. But uh, apparently that didn't happen. And uh, other exploits include rising from the U.S. Army private to becoming a captain, during which she was recognized as a distinguished military scholar. And she was teaching in Manchuria, the red Chinese equivalent of Fargo, North Dakota. But unfortunately, there were a lot more people, six million people. And she literally went to the end of the earth to find her husband, who she met while working as a radio operator at the South Pole Station in Antarctica. Now, she has several other bestsellers, but I want to get into talking about this book and just a little bit about her. So I'm thrilled that she is joining us uh, all the way from across the country. So thank you so much, Barbara, for joining us. It's a a pleasure to be here. So, Barbara, you have to tell me, how is it that you ended up even on a Soviet fishing boat in the Cold War? 
Well, I I was working as a captain in the in the army, and actually, I had been trained in the army as a Russian linguist. I I had wanted to become a professor of linguistics, and my father would not pay for me to uh, to study linguistics because he said you couldn't get a job at it, which is probably true. And so, when I went into the military, I realized that there actually was. Um, well, they made me into a signal officer. And even though I knew nothing at all about electronics, after a while, after a few years, I realized there was a lot of interesting uh, things to do So when I, with that kind of career. So when I get out, got out of the military, I, um, I started studying electrical engineering, but I could only take so much of it. And it turned out that at that time there was a half-Soviet, half-American-owned uh, company in Seattle, Washington. So I'd I'd study engineering for six months or so, and then I would go off and I'd work as a Russian translator on the high seas. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a it was a very interesting um, juxtaposition of insights: uh, hard science mixed with well, going out and drinking quite a bit. <laughs> but actually, I think well, that's pretty much how I ended up on the high seas. Mm, and then you. Ended up at the South Pole to meet your husband there. Were you both in the military at that time? No, actually, I, ITT Antarctic Services uh, was, they did support for the military, but we were contracted there as civilians. So I, I, I do always love to say I had to go to the ends of the earth to meet that man. He yeah. actually proposed at the South Pole Station right at the stroke of midnight in oh. uh, 1984. So, so uh, is he a techie too? You're both techies as well. Yes, he's. Um, his background is in automotive science, hmm. and so between the two of us, well, he keeps me well grounded as far as reality is concerned. So, what exactly do you teach at in in Michigan? Uh, do you teach systems engineering, or what? <laughs> I was a little confused. What do you teach there? Well, I teach a kind of a catch-all. I've taught, for many years, I've taught electrical engineering, and then they started a new systems and industrial engineering department. And so now I teach, often teach statistics uh, and probability, and then I also teach a little bit about, um, well, how things work. It's a course I developed for non-engineers. But I think all of this, uh, my scientific background, looking at, being able to look at psychological occurrences and psychological traits, using insights from hard science, I think gives people a very different perspective on why, why people do the kinds of things they do. Yes. And and I I really enjoyed this book. I read Cold-Blooded Kindness last week, and I actually found it very interesting and bizarre. And this woman, oh my goodness, I mean, she, this is really quite disturbing as well. So I guess the idea of why I thought it would be a good time to have this on the show is because we deal with people who are codependent. We deal every day with people who are manipulators. And we deal with people who are, you know, playing games with us and, and getting sympathy when they really shouldn't be getting sympathy. And so, you know, I think, I, I guess I wonder, how is it that you, 
<laughs> that you decided to even write this book? Well, I know that when I was working out on the Soviet trawlers, I remember looking up one day, and my captain always had this picture of Stalin on his wall. And finally, we were a little bit tipsy one evening, and I said, Yuri Vasilyevich, how could you have a picture of this man on your wall? Don't you realize he killed something like 20 million Russians? And he turned to me and he smiled and said, Barbara, everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> when, we, when the world is communist, we will not have these kinds of mistakes. And I think that, that set a seed what I began to realize, and especially after I wrote my last book, which was Evil Genes, Why Rome Fell, Hitler Rose, and Ron Failed, and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend, and she really did steal my mother's boyfriend. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, what I realized was there, there truly are bad people out there. Uh, they're not diagnosed. They're subclinical, but they're nasty, and they, they intentionally do bad things to people. But as I talked to uh, audiences after writing that book, many people would ask me, okay, we can, we can believe that maybe Hitler had a neurophysiological screw loose, so to speak. But all the Germans didn't have something like that. What, how could they have done the kinds of things they did, for example, during the Holocaust? And I began to realize that it was something as was reflected with that Soviet experience. In other words, people can often be brought to do the most horrific things, not because they intend to be evil, but rather because they want, they, they think they're doing something good. And when I realized that, I thought, hmm, okay, you cannot tell my boss this, uh, because uh, by day I'm supposed to be a, a very straightforward and stalwart engineering professor, but by night, I really love to read the National Enquirer and the Globe. <laughs> uh, so every Friday night, I get all excited because it's about time for those things to come out again. But one evening, I was reading a story about this woman, Carol Alden, and she said she had been abused by this horrific monster who she'd just been trying to help. And I thought, that's the kind of person I would like to write about, how, how someone who means well but does has bad things happen to her because of her her attempts to help but what i found was it was like peeling an onion or unbelievable uh, layer upon layer of complexity and deception oh it was so fun and so much dark humor actually involved in the story so it was a whirlwind couple of years there but a uh, very interesting to research Yes, and for those who are listening, what ends up happening is that you find out right from the beginning that, that Carol killed her husband, and whether it's murder or whether she was a battered woman, which she is trying to persuade the court that she is a battered woman, um, there is a, there's a lot of deception and a lot of manipulation. And, and you know, so, you know, I, I found myself thinking, how do we deal with people who are like this? You know, she didn't have an, a bad upbringing like, you know, the craziness that, that Hitler went through or the craziness that her own husband went through. She didn't seem to have, well, we're not sure, but she didn't seem to have the kind of craziness. 
And so what is it? Is it, is it nurture? Is it nature? What is it? Well, I think in Carol's case, it was pretty obviously uh, something biological that had happened. I don't think she intends to be the way she is. Uh, my suspicion, there, there could be any number of factors. Uh, one, her, her mother ran a very, very high temperature, just, just happened to get chicken pox right at, at just before giving birth. That could actually, high temperatures can do some very, they can be very damaging for the fetus at certain times. Right. And there, there could be many other things, just a, a little environmental exposure that can set things askew. And I suspect that's what happened in her case. Certainly, uh, I, I've met and spent a great deal of time with her family, and they're, they're just terrific people who have have had just gut-wrenching, years of gut-wrenching um, difficulties because of Carol's behavior. But I think that what's important to realize out of this is exactly what you were alluding to, the idea that there are some people like this, and it's important to be able to set limits. And that's what I, that was one thing I really wanted to research was empathy. How, how do we empathize with others? And might there be times when we want to turn off empathy? And what I found is that, yes, there are, in fact, we have actually got neurological imaging of people deliberately turning off their empathy. And that was in a case where there was uh, Jean Desity at the University of Chicago had studied uh, physicians who perform acupuncture. And what he found is that a normal person who's watching somebody get an acupuncture needle put into them, they would be very upset about it. And it shows neurologically the same areas of your brain fire as if you were actually receiving that acupuncture needle being put into you. But an acupuncture expert, however, doesn't experience that at all. And there's two different areas of the brain that, that act differently than a, a normal person. One is the area of the brain that exerts top-down control over your emotions. And the second, that, that lights up. And the second is the area that has to do with you thinking that person is spatially different from yourself. So between amplification of activities in those two areas, the, uh, the expert is able to turn their empathy off and do what they need to do without getting all upset about it. I think there's a lesson in that for all of us, that indeed there are times when we deliberately need to damp down our empathy, and we can do it. We can learn to do it. It may not be easy, but it's something that we can teach ourselves to do. And especially if you think about if, you, if you're on the freeway and there's an accident and you stop to help, and, you know, I took my CERT training, I'm sure that when I stop, even though I would be empathetic, I would have to turn that off at least for a period of time to help the people who are injured. Absolutely. You turn it off at that time. You know, it's like people say, gosh, I don't know how I was able to do that. 
you know, and then afterwards you may fall apart. But but at least at the time, you there's something that happens neurologically that you can do what you need to do to take care of things. And then afterwards you can go, wow, wow, that was tough, you know. You've got it, exactly. And And the thing is, though, it's important to realize it isn't just in an accident where we need to do those kinds of uh, act that way. Right. Also, it can be when someone who is playing on your emotions. In fact, someone who often we think of empathy and caring for others as our very best traits, and I truly believe they are. But what that also means is they are the best hooks that someone can get into us to try and manipulate us and get us to do what they want. Yes, and that's what Carol was a mastermind of that. She could get people to feel sorry for her, that she was victimized or she was abused or she was whatever it was that she said she was. She was, she played the victim. Absolutely. I, I call her a professional victim, and she was a master at it. Yes. She could play virtually any tune that that she could detect that you wanted to hear in order to elicit sympathy from you. Yes. And I think that's really an important point when we're talking about healing conflict as well, because you really need to know very, um, very clearly who you're dealing with and what you're dealing with when you're trying to resolve a conflict. Is someone manipulating you? Is someone using you? Is someone being so codependent? that you don't you don't even recognize the difference between yourself and them you know and yeah. and i think that is a critical thing as i as i saw these people that were manipulated by her as well as her husband who was manipulated by her he was you know he was in jail and then she brings him into her house and you know it it looks like she's being so kind but it was almost like <laughs> like the you know the the spider that you know <laughs> exactly because some of these people died very unusual deaths. Yes, her first two husbands, right? Well, no, although she told others that her previous husbands had committed suicide. Right. Which wasn't true at all. Right. But sure did give those people an indication that something was very wrong with her. But her previous boyfriend was found dead with multiple heroin um, injections in him. Many, many how do you give yourself that many? And so uh, she had called, and in fact, later she told people it was one of the most beautiful things she'd ever seen was his uh, his cremation. And, yes, that was so weird. It's just so weird. So, but at any at any rate, it. I think with people of that nature, the important thing to realize, and and this is what. I know you do in your mediation, is not to be upset, not to grab those hooks, yes, but to be dispassionate. And they often realize, oh, wait a minute, I guess I can't get my hooks in, and not only that, I can't even get a rise out of them, which is another way that they are hooking you. To step back, turn those emotions off, be dispassionate, that, I think, is vital for the kind of work that you do. Well, I'll tell you, I was thinking about that when I was, you know, reading your book and thinking about people who are manipulative or play, people who play victims. And I happen to have a male client now who constantly plays the victim. And you know what I do? I 
I I don't get dispassionate. I go, I know that life has, it seems like it's really hard, but I believe in you and I know you are an empowered person. And I know that this is going to be over with very soon. And I, you know, I just don't buy into it, in other words. And I, and by the time we're done with the conversation, uh, he, you know, he says, well, I know that makes sense because I just empower him and I don't let him play the game, but I do it in a, in a very kind of very gentle, but confrontive way. And it seems to really work with my clients that play victims. And of course I, I deal with a lot of victims of identity theft because that's another expertise. And I tell them, you may be victimized, but you are not a victim. That is, that's a wonderful philosophy. One person I know, his name is Skip Downing, and he does a set of courses called On Course uh, to help college students get on track in their college studies, and, and it's highly successful. And one of the things I love that Skip does is if a student comes up and says, oh, you know, I couldn't do this because... I have to take care of my sister's babies there and and she was sick last night and I had he will put up two fingers in a V symbol and what that means is you're playing the victim. Mm. And he'll smile as he does it but it really it, students often re- don't realize when they're making themselves out to be victims. victims and and maybe it worked for them, you know? That's the thing that when when you play the victim role you you may the reason you do it is because you're getting some kind of benefit from it yes and if you don't get the benefit from that and someone shows you you're not going to get the benefit from that but instead you're going to get the benefit from being empowered then it it helps you to shift your mindset absolutely well one thing that i find with this v symbol is that it seems to it's catchy yeah it brings it to a conscious level Right, and then other students start doing it to themselves. Yes, and it, it's like this very—it's a very powerful and empowering um, sort of social modality that I think is—it's infectious and it helps people. Oh, wait a minute! I've got to stop thinking like a victim because often in society today, unfortunately, we're trained that being a victim is always a wonderful thing, but now victim kind of thinking can also get you into trouble. And, and you know, I'm thinking at the way that, that Barbara played this, not Barbara, I'm sorry, that Carol played this. When you met her in person, you went to the jail, I read, and, and I really was intrigued by that. And I was wondering what, you know, when you, when you met with her and you already knew at that point, right, is that, that you already knew that she really was manipulative by that time? At that time point, I still wasn't sure. Oh, I see. I had gotten about 100 pages of letters from her. And if you only read her letters, you think, oh, my goodness, this poor woman. Right. This is terrible. And then when I met her, my antenna went up instantly. Yes. was just something about her that was that mixture of bravado, I'm being so brave to put up with this, mixed with poor me. And and but then it, it quickly became clear when I began checking what she'd written with the court documents, with interviews with prosecutors, with with people who had known her for decades. It became crystal clear that this was a woman who wrought havoc on people's lives 
yes. over and over and over again. And it was it was it was quite something to see. What really shocked me was how good she is at manipulating her followers. Yes. There were a lot of people that you had talked to that really believed she was a good person and that she was really um, abused by her husband. Yes. Yeah. And, and what was funny was they took only her word for it. Right. So they would say, oh, Marty, he was this horrible, evil human being. So I went into this thinking he was a psychopath and she was kind of an angel. Right. And then, and you, then you turned around completely. Uh, absolutely. It wasn't as if he was an angel, but there was absolutely no record of all of him ever, ever abusing, uh, physically abusing anyone. Even Carol's own children said he had never, ever physically touched her in any way. He had never abused her. Yet she was known as the queen of, salt, of sadomasochism right. in Salt Lake City. And she even would get angry and write her friends and say, you know, he just won't abuse me the way I want him to abuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, she loved the sadomasochism, and he wasn't into it. Right. Oh, gosh, I know. Yeah, is, she, is she in jail now? What is she doing now? Do you know? She is in jail now. She has a 1 to 15 um, indeterminate sentence in Utah. And she's coming up for parole in September. So I know that some individuals who are very upset at what she's done in the past are, are definitely going in to discuss it. Because when you look at it, there are so many elements of premeditation in, in her killing. She went oh, out yeah. and bought the gun the day before she And she drove, home. you know, what, 100 miles or something to go and get the gun, you know. Exactly. She was clearly hiding it. She dug a hole. She called her boyfriend and said, please come and help me bury the body. Uh, right, right. Nobody knows. And he said, wait a minute, I'm not getting involved in this. Right. I'm calling police. And then she quickly called. It, it's it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It, um, it is. And, you know, you wonder, I mean, in terms of, of healing conflict, she caused so much conflict in her life, in her children's lives, in her family's lives. You know, I mean, this this is the people that were taken in by her and did not and, and just believed in her. This is the part that I think that's so critical to understand is how is it that they didn't question when things were seemed a little off base? Do you know what I mean? How is it that they weren't questioning her? Well, tell us more about that, you know, because they, they you could easily see from your book how the, there were so many inconsistencies in what she said or what she did. So I think the, the real issue is all the people who really believed in her, all the codependent people, even her last husband who got sucked into her, to her web. I think the way that this can happen is someone like Carol compartmentalizes. They want to make sure that you don't talk to other people who might have other versions of whatever story she is talking about. Mm. So I came at this, I mean, I, I like to think that I write a, a taught thriller kind of way of writing. Oh, it was so fun. I, was, I, I actually um, got to meet some very well-known writers who really like um, the way I write. Uh, but 
I think like an engineer when I'm exploring the research. Yeah, great research. I love it. And and you explain things like codependency and you explain things like altruism. And I think that's really, really helpful so people kind of get the the, the back story. <laughs> exactly. And so what she wasn't counting on, even though I told her this at the very beginning, I said, I'm, uh, I think you're innocent, but I'm going to check everything out for myself. And I think she just took that as, well, I think you're innocent, right? Right, right, and, right. And forgetting about the rest of that. And so the engineering side of me gave a lot of, I mean, every single thing I'd hear, I'd always go check it against a yes. written record or yes. people who knew her. or and, and only when I felt satisfied that, and what surprised me, though, was you start digging and then wait a minute, there's a problem with what you're finding here. Then you check it against something. Oh, wait a minute, there's a problem with that. And then the the deeper you dig, the more you'd find. In fact, I ended up finding things out. And I mean, the prosecutors on this case were superb. They're they're just, I, I don't think sometimes, we're so intense now as a society on, saying, oh, those evil prosecutors, they did a terrible thing. Well, I uh, never think that. But, um, but but you know what, Barbara, we are just about out of time. So I think you got everybody excited that they want to go and look at your book, Cold-Blooded Kindness by Barbara Oakley. And we are really out of time, but I just, I really enjoyed it. And I think that what you were talking about is the way you did your research by asking all those questions. And that's what I do in mediation. And I think the bottom line is, is that if you are dealing with someone that you have some gut feeling, you need to ask a lot of people and get some good information before you have a lot of empathy and and lose yourself to codependency. So we're out of time. Thank you so much, Barbara. Well, thank you, Mari, and we'll talk to you next time. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. for Prescriptions for Healing Conflict and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thank you. It's about trust. Yeah, yeah. It's about faith. It's about trust. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.